Okay, first, though, let's talk about BC restaurants trying to survive in this pandemic. Uh, restaurants allowed to have uh, in-dining in dining service again, but the government concerned about the new surge in COVID cases. Yesterday, uh, the government announcing some tighter restrictions on restaurant operations. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Paul Johnson. Dining al fresco is delightful any summer, but in the time of COVID-19, it's a lifeline for a lot of restaurants. We miss having people in our space more than anything. At Livio Forno e Vino on Vancouver's Commercial Drive, their ability to expand out onto the sidewalk with a new patio has saved their summer business. Going forward, the challenge is staying nimble, keeping their customers happy while staying in compliance with Victoria. We see it as a lot as an education practice. Uh, things are changing for everyone and we're doing our best to kind of try and pivot and provide safe environments. Keep your groups small. That is what is going to prevent transmission. The province's fine-tuning of the rules for restaurants and bars means tables can have parties of no more than six people. There's no pushing of tables together. Everyone has to stay seated, and there's no self-service of alcohol. Okay, you heard some of the tighter restrictions there on restaurants in B.C., but should the rules be even tighter for restaurant operation during this pandemic? Let's check in now with Ian Tostenson. He's the president of the B.C. Restaurant Association. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Ian. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the current status of the, of the restaurant industry. I know you guys were very happy to uh, start getting back to a little bit of normalcy and, and doing some expanded restaurant service, but now we're seeing a surge in cases. How is it going out there for the restaurant business these days, and what are your concerns right now with the with the cases going up again? It's like shifting sand. Um, the situation in Kelowna, uh, has actually uh, caused you know another sort of reaction, and, and what, what we're seeing, Mike, is is a lot of is a lot of consumer reaction. They hear that they hear that kind of stuff, and they start translating. And of course, restaurants being so visible. And uh, what I learned this week, which was quite astounding, was that uh, there's confusion uh, by consumers as to what exactly restaurants should be doing. So, for example, masks or no masks. Masks are not mandatory. But um, people are seeing that, well, if not wearing a mask, then that's, they're not complying with the regulations. Or um, they didn't take my name when I checked in. And so, you know, they're offside. And people are really sensitive. And so they should be about that. So, um, you know, what Dr. Henry came out with the other day was just tightening it up. So basically, you know, the way to view a restaurant is you check in. It's like an airline now. You check in. Yep. You uh, go to your seat. You have a good in, in-flight experience. Uh, if you have to leave your seat, you go to the washroom, you go there and back, and then you leave. And there's no table hopping and there's no, uh, you know, sort of uh, visiting people in the restaurant. We're really trying to make sure that we isolate and, and protect those little pods, if you will, that, um, that, that go out no more than six people. So all this is workable. Uh, and we haven't had any problems. And I, and I know the industry's done an extraordinary job with this. But one of the things that... Um, we're going to call for, uh, we have this panel of 60 restaurant experts that we, we take things to, and, and we're going to, they basically said it's a great idea, but we're going to recommend to industry ourselves that every restaurant should be wearing masks for no other reason wow. than um, it's, it's a public perception issue, and I don't want to see restaurants that aren't doing that getting outed um, because they don't have to do it, but you know people are sort of outing them. So we're going to tighten this up a little bit ourselves, 
And um, so far, it's been pretty good. But Kelowna's knocked a bit of steam out of, out of sales. People sort of go, they pull back. And it'll take them a while to restore their confidence. Right. And then it, it should, re, you know, it should come back. But yeah, it's really, it's really, really uh, a difficult market for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that before, how a lot of this will come down to consumer confidence. Do people feel safe going out to a restaurant? And if they do, uh, they'll come back. If, if they don't, they will likely stay home or maybe get takeout. And you're right. I think this, uh, this eruption of cases in Kelowna uh, has maybe thrown a scare into people. And maybe that translates into uh, depressed restaurant demand in other parts, even outside of the city of Kelowna. So it's interesting what you said about masks. So in your experience, do... Uh, in normal and current restaurant operations, are a lot of restaurant employees wearing masks now or not? Typically? Well, this is the change. Like we, I would say that it, you know you'd see most a lot of most restaurants started off in the, uh, in Vancouver, for example, wearing masks, and also in Victoria. And as you get further away from the downtown cores, so let's look at Kelowna. We have a, we have a, 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 one of our employees lives there. Um, they went, well, we have no COVID here and no one wears masks. That was like three weeks ago. Now they've had the situation and now that's switched. Now people are, you know, running to put masks on because of the, what happened. So, um, you know, it was, it was sort of suburban versus urban. And I actually was, when we put the regulations together in the government, I sort of thought masks are going to go over not well in restaurants, but I actually think they're cool. I think they're great. And I think they're the right symbol. And I think if you look at the United States, you know, 75% of the people now want masks. Yep. And I think that we all hear about the situation, you know, in, in Florida, uh, how, how quickly can get away. So all everything we can do together to, to correct this and, and keep those numbers down in BC is in our best interest. And so we can, we can take Dr. Henry's platform, which is awesome, and we can fine-tune it and even increase it. I don't think she wants to do masks because I think across the economy there's all sorts of issues with that. But... We can certainly do it. So that's um, that's something we're going to embark on. And I we're going to also embark on, I think, uh, some social messaging um, that you'll probably hear about in the next uh, day or two, which is an initiative we're taking with the, with the bar guys in BC to try to get people as sort of millennials to sort of come in and, and be part of the solution here and understand that this is serious and that ex- what I worry about is the external events in Kelowna are now cascading their problems onto business. And I don't think that, you know, this is what happened in Kelowna. They sort of see the connection, but it is. As soon as that starts happening, people start retreating, and therefore restaurants get hurt. So we're going to try to see if we can play our role into bringing people together and saying, look, there's ways of having fun uh, in, 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 with, with COVID, and here's how you do it. You do, we don't have to tell people to stay home, go out and have fun, but we just got to have some common sense. So there's, right. there's a lot of opportunities ahead of us, Mike, that restaurants are so influential on things um, that I think we're going to take a next stage here and see how we can maybe even play a larger role in, in, okay. uh, in British Columbia's economy. Okay, speaking to Ian Tostenson from the BC Restaurant Association. So, so your recommendation to your member restaurants in British Columbia, the thousands of them, is is what that your staff should be wearing masks during operating yeah. hours? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I talked to uh, someone and said, "Oh, there's a there's a, a patio in Vancouver, a rooftop patio," and they said, "Well, they don't have the staff don't have to wear them outside because they're outside." Yeah, I said that's great, but but I don't understand that. If I go inside and they're wearing a mask, and go outside and not wearing a mask, it seems to me that they're not playing by their own rules. So we're going to recommend every restaurant in BC make best efforts 
to get their staff wearing uh, wearing masks. Would, you, would yeah. you like to see? So that'll be you know you guys are uh, an industry association. This will be a voluntary, I guess, recommendation, right? Yeah. I mean, do you do you want to see the government put their foot down on that? Like, would you like to see Dr. Henry turn around today and say we're going to issue a provincial public health order to mask up in a rest- restaurants? No, I think we could do this ourselves, Mike. I tell you why is that I don't think Dr. Henry's really, really sold. She said yesterday that you know masks are really the last line of defense. There's more effective ways distancing, washing hands. We do that really well in restaurants. Um, I think this is just more for the comfort of our guests. So um, I think she, I, I'm pretty sure she's going to be a little bit reluctant. I think she has to be careful about recommending things that may not have the medical effect that she's looking for. But we can, okay. and uh, so. You know, if she wants to follow our lead in this one, sure, because it will just make sure we get 100% compliance. But I think that people are so, you know, so wanting to do whatever they can in their business to provide a safe environment. I think you'll see um, a widespread adoption of this. Yeah, we don't want to go backwards. We don't want to go back to shutting stuff down. All right, welcome back. Talking about the surge in COVID-19 cases in BC, its impact on the BC restaurant sector. A lot of restaurants just fighting to hang on here. Fears of the economy sort of receding again as the caseload goes up. But should restaurant workers be wearing masks on the job? Would that increase confidence for customers to come in and visit a restaurant? My guest, Ian Tostenson from the Restaurant Association. Your calls, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free in your cell. Let's go to your calls right now. Rob in Surrey. Hi, Rob. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Good. I want to compliment Ian. Uh, he's 100% right uh, to get the buy-in. I'll give you an example. Um, sure. I drive by the English Bay Davy and Demon, there's some very busy bars with patios. One is a restaurant chain where everybody wears masks. Across the street, there are two bars slash restaurants. One bar, I can see the people, the waiters, going outside, and they're wearing masks, and the other bar right beside it, they're not wearing masks. So as a confidence builder and just common sense safety, it makes abundant sense throughout British Columbia for the servers to have masks, no matter where, what part of the city, province, because people are traveling now, and it's just really a confidence builder showing that the staff care. Rob, thank you for the call. Ian, I'm sure you would agree with that. What if you got an employee, though, that doesn't want to wear a mask? Then what do you do? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we're, we're up for negotiations on this stuff. We're talking public yeah. safety. I think you kind of get on board or you maybe go consider working somewhere else i mean i mean it's that we can't you know we can't afford to take this industry or any other with 15 billion dollars a year and 200,000 people and just sort of you know start being soft and things about like you know, saw they you know you're either on the program or you're not in my estimation what has been the reaction to your member restaurants to your advisory here to mask up are, are most restaurants saying sure we're going along with this or are you getting any pushback no, none, none whatsoever. I think everybody says it's a great idea. I think that uh, they see the need for it. That was a great, great uh, perspective from your last caller. Yeah, it was. Um, that's how they see it as well, too. So it just needs a rallying call to get everybody uh, on board here. And so I think they're quite relieved, frankly. I think that yeah. they're, they're trying to accommodate different things, and I think this will just put a standard in place so it'll be better for everybody. Okay, keep calling me on it. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Bob in Nanaimo. Hi, Bob. Hi, Mike. Morning, morning, Ian. Uh, yeah, I've been listening to Ian for a long time and very impressed. I think he's uh, 
and logical thinker, and I like that. I'm an older guy, so I had a bucket list day. The bucket list day the other day, I was at Fairwinds Golf Course, and then came down into Lanceville, and we had um, we planned this out, and I was just wanted to throw a a, a, a high five for for the Lanceville pub that they did a great job. All the servers were were masked up. Uh, they have opened up the terraces and the area where tables that would typically have been maybe 10 or 12 people were maximum five. Um, I guess it was really, really impressive. And and just listening to the previous caller is, you know, we we can't legislate things that come around arrogance and and dismissiveness. and, And, but I think following Ian's advice, following Dr. Bonnie's advice, following the advice I hear through CKNW, I think that, uh, you know, if we follow that, it's fairly simple. I, I'm older, and I guess it's easier maybe some days to, to follow this stuff, but um, yeah. I just have to say it was really impressive, and everybody was masked up there. Uh, it okay, was just th- a really good, great experience. So well thank, done. Thank you for calling in. Good, uh, good shout-out to the Lanceville Pub there. Glad you had a nice day there. Kim on the open line in Langley. Hi, Kim. Hi there. Good morning. We were so relieved when restaurants reopened. It just seemed like it was some um, return to normalcy. So we've been taking advantage of the opportunity to eat out more often and support our local restaurants. Places like Cactus Club and Brown Social House, they're all... They're all masked up. Everything's clean. There's distancing. But we did have one unfortunate experience in a smaller restaurant where when we, when we came into the restaurant, we noticed that the tables were quite close together. And to our horror, they had tablecloths on the tables. And as we approached our table, the tablecloth was flipped over for us. And so we sat down. The server was not masked. And the fellow, almost upon our entry behind my husband, sneezed five times. And I tell you, we just about jumped out of our skin. So that was okay. the only unfortunate experience. Everything else has been just just wonderful, and we feel very Kim, comfortable. Thanks for the call. We got thirty seconds here, Ian. If you, what would be the message you want to get out there? Uh, praise publicly. Uh, talk to the manager of the restaurants to uh, point out things you made uncomfortable for. I'm going to take this one, and if you'd like to email us at info at dot com with with situations that you feel we can go help correct. Like your previous caller, I have, we'll, we'll reach out to that restaurant and say, you know what, okay. um, we'll try to guide them through being better. So uh, info at bcrfa.com, and um, that's, uh, we're just going to keep working on this. It's a, the restaurants that did a great job. They're safe. Get out and enjoy okay. them, and um, be cautious. Ian, hang in there. Better days are ahead. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Michael. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith, and let's talk about secondhand smoke in condos and apartment buildings now. And the law in British Columbia is that uh, smoking is banned in common areas around condos and apartment buildings, but in many cases, you're still allowed to smoke in your own unit. It's your own home. You are allowed to smoke in your own home unless the rules around your condo or apartment building forbid it, which is allowed. Now, think about this. Let's say you're living in a condo or an apartment building and you're getting secondhand smoke into your own unit. What do you do about it? I hear about this all the time. There is a campaign in British Columbia to ban smoking in apartment and condo buildings. We're going to talk about that right now. Mira Orak is my guest and she's a well-known activist. Uh, and commentator in British Columbia. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. 
uh, once worked for uh, Premier John Horgan in the past in her, in her varied career. Uh, Mira, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hey, Mira, I follow you on Twitter, which I encourage everybody to do. And I was uh, your tweet the other day is what jumped out at me. And you tweeted, if you have successfully banned cigarette smoking from your apartment or condo building, I want to know how you did it. I'm losing my mind with open windows and smoke and a new baby over here. Right, okay, Mira, tell me, how many kids you got, first of all? I've got two, and one of them's on me. He's three weeks old right now, oh. so if you hear him, that's who he is. Okay, um, yeah. three weeks old. That's lovely. Okay, so tell me what's going on here with the secondhand smoke coming into your unit there. Well, two, a couple things. First of all, we're in an older building in Vancouver in Mount Pleasant. It's about, I don't know, 40-something years old. Um I should say I've lived in apartment buildings for the past 20 years, apartment or condo buildings. In this case, we own the unit. Um, and it, has, it hadn't occurred to me before to check if any of my neighbors were smokers before we bought the unit because I've actually never lived um, next to a smoker, which I think says something about, you know, not a lot of people still smoke inside um, yeah. and, and impact their neighbors anymore. But in this case, uh, we have a few smokers and... Um, the issue is both indoor and outdoor. So there is a room um, in our in our um, condo where smoke comes through the um, ventilation, and the room itself, it's of the storage room, is very smoky. You take towels out of there, and they smell. The big, bigger issue for us, frankly, um, is in the summer when we want to have the windows open because it's hot, as it has been the past couple of weeks, and. Um, I would say every, you know, half hour to 45 minutes, we find ourselves having to close the balcony door or the window and turn a fan on to get the smoke out because people are smoking cigarettes on their balcony and it's coming straight into our unit, um, making it unhealthy and really unpleasant to, to live amongst. Okay. Are you, are you concerned for your, you've got a three-week-old infant on your lap there. Are you concerned for your kids? I'm, I am. I am. It's not good for their health. We all know that. There's. It's not like there's a shortage of evidence around that. It's. Not, it's also not good for us. Um, but particularly, obviously, for a small baby, you know, yeah. air quality has significant impact. So it. It really bothers me. Okay. Have you. Have you. Um, have you tried talking to your neighbors? We have. So there's. First of all, I should say, like, there's goodwill in our building. This isn't a you know big content, contentious issue. Um, there are people both on the strata and within the building who have been trying to um, organize neighbors and, um, and pass a um, no smoking law within the building. Um, these, these are just slow mechanisms. A survey went out to everyone last year. People filled it out. It came up at the AGM. There was a big discussion about, are we talking about cigarette smoke or marijuana or both? Um, you know, a question around infringement of civil liberties. Um, and then yeah. it was determined that, you know, there is a desire to do this. The strata will look into it. And next year we will vote on it. So, you know, we're now two years into a process and we're still inhaling smoke. I, I do think the government needs to act on this. I'm encouraged by some of the advocacy from the Heart and Stroke Foundation and the BC Lung Association. And I personally think this is um, absolutely a when and how, not an if question. It has to happen. It's it's fundamentally a health issue, um, and the Ministry of Health needs to explore how to solve this. 
Okay, what would you say to someone who's listening and, and saying, well, you kind of you kind of get what you pay for. Like before you bought your your condo, maybe you should have done some some more diligent research on whether smoking was allowed in the building if this was a concern for you and if it was allowed as it is in in your building, maybe buy somewhere else where smoking is banned because I believe it is legal for a strata council to ban smoking in an individual building. So maybe yeah, you should and that maybe will you should, likely yeah. happen here and and it's, you know, for me, the issue is that particularly right now, while we're all working from home and, and many more kids are home, we're asking people to make sacrifices for the collective, to wear masks, to physically distance. Um, this isn't so different. It's we're people are going to have to make some sacrifices to um, for the health of the collective. And I think it's time to, it was sort of beyond time. We've seen cigarette smoke surely is, you know, banned in so many um, open shared spaces. Um, yeah. I don't think this is much different. Yeah, but I know that. But but do you think that maybe you should have? Uh, it would have been wiser to purchase uh, a condo in a, in a non-smoking building. Well, <laughs> maybe. Um, what I you know what I would say to that is this isn't a housing market where you have enormous choice, and unfortunately. Yeah. There's not that many buildings where where it is non-smoking. I'm glad to see that the um, website that's been put together about, um, you know, that lists some of the buildings that are smoke-free. I think ultimately they're all going to be. So we're, we're yeah. going to move in this direction. People shouldn't have to, you know, scout out buildings. I think there's like 30 that are smoke-free. That's very, very few. Okay, there is a very uh, vibrant campaign here to, to ban smoking in apartment buildings uh, and condo buildings in BC, and I'm going to talk to uh, one of the leaders of that, that movement in a moment here. But um, just last question for you, uh, Mira. Let, let's say your condo building, your strata council, does decide to ban smoking in the future, which would be your preference here. What would happen to the smokers who own a, a condo, a unit in that building now? Would they be required to butt out or go outside to smoke? Or, or move out? How would that work? Presumably they would have to go outside and perhaps yeah. cross the street. Um, yeah. There's not an apartment building across the street from us and perhaps smoke there. Okay. Mira, thanks a lot for sharing your story today. <laughs> thanks very much for having me. Okay, you bet. That's Mira Orak with, with her story there of secondhand smoke in her own building, uh, in her own home there. Let's check in with Jack Boomer now. He is the head of the a clean air coalition in British Columbia campaigning for smoke-free uh, uh, built, uh, homes in, in British Columbia. Jack, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. What do you think about Mira's story there? I'm sure that's a, a one you've heard before. Well, first of all, I think that we should be hiring Mira to work for us because she uh, exactly is has the story, and not only the story, but she is very has uh, uh, embodies a lot of common sense, which is exactly what we've been talking about. You know, we've been, the Heart and Stroke Foundation in particular, along with partners at the Lung Association and the Canadian Cancer Society, we've been working on this issue since 2004. So it's going on 16 years that we've been working on this issue. And just as Mira said, it's not a matter of, um, uh, it's, it's more when and how, not if this is going to happen. It's going to happen over time, and jurisdictions throughout uh, North America are kind of moving in this direction. And I think what Mira pointed out was exactly correct. You shouldn't have to be uh, having a checklist of different things before you purchase a building around your health. And um, that's one why, of the why things... Not? That, well, why not? Well, one you? of the things is that 
Um, we live in uh, a place where you know that uh, people should not be playing loud music in the building, and it should also. There's other things about barbecues and other things like that that you just expect that there's going to be common sense rules in place. And so one of the things is around smoking. And the percentage of people that smoke in British Columbia is very low, hovering between 10 and 14%. So many people don't even consider it an issue until it becomes an issue. So we've been encouraging the government to move in the direction of disclosure rules where uh, it wouldn't cost anything, just that um, that if, people, if it's not a smoke-free building, that the... Um, if the realtor is selling the the unit to say, first of all, was there smoking in the building or who smokes in the building around them? That simple thing would have alerted Amira to the to that fact or purchasers to the fact that there may be smokers okay. around them. What do you say to the argument that, you know, my home is my castle, I'm gonna I can, I should be allowed to do what I want within my own walls, my own home, instead of having the government telling me I can't even smoke in my own home now. Like people argue that's going too far. How do you, you know, we, we've heard this argument repeatedly, and there are so many rules around what you can do in your own home that uh, you can't uh, play loud music, as I just mentioned, at any time of the day or night, it's, even though it's your castle. You can listen to it, but you probably have to put in headphones. You uh, can't do, uh, have barbecues on balconies in some buildings because of fire restrictions and other things, and that's just a given. And so uh, tobacco use... Uh, is not a human right. It is something that people do, and that there are ways that it can be accommodated. People can go outside, as as was noted by your by Mira and others. And so there are ways that people can uh, gain access or smoke if they so choose, but that it will be done in a way that it won't affect others. And I think okay. the really big point that Mira pointed out, and I just loved that interview with her, is the fact that we need to make some sacrifices for the masses, especially now because people are, are working at home and living at home more because yeah. of COVID. And so we should be doing everything we can to protect the health of people. If people went into the office, they're protected from secondhand smoke in the office and therefore they should be protected from the known cancer-causing agents in secondhand smoke, and that can easily be done and accommodated. I'm talking secondhand smoke in condos and apartments. Should smoking be banned in multi-unit residences? Jack Boomer is my guest. Lots of calls. Let's get right to them. Brent in Langley. Hi, Brent. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hi. I um, I live in an apartment. I, I distinctly said when I'm before moving in, I said I don't want to be around smokers. Yeah, don't worry. You're isolated away. Well, guess what? I got three units surrounded around me. I got to keep my windows closed in the summer because the smoke comes in. And when I close it, they're eighth of an inch uh, thick, right? So it comes up through the floorboards, through the wall sockets. I mean, you name it. And management says, hey, just go and, uh, you know, file a complaint to your tenant uh, and uh, anonymous, right? Well, guess what? I mean, that's not going to work. RTB says not a smart idea to do that because they're going to know who ratted you out. (laughs) Who, who, so who told you at first of all that there were no smokers around you? The landlord? Yeah, the landlord has said oh. that. He said, "Well, I'm not going to sign a lease if uh, if that's the case." And they said, "Don't worry, you're isolated away from it." <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Okay, okay, Brent. Thanks for calling in. Um, yeah, like he, he was mentioning the smoke coming in through the wall, so- through the electrical sockets and stuff. Jack, I mean, how does smoke get into an apartment anyway? Typically, well, there's there's you know so many different ways and it all depends yeah. on how the building is is uh, constructed what the ventilation system is where windows are placed where people stand outside i mean th- this is one of the challenges with uh, 
old buildings, uh, older buildings in particular, the way that they were constructed. And, and it is yeah. difficult because smoke uh, is so inherently small that you cannot use, you need gale force winds to um, eliminate them from a place. It gets to be in protected. anywhere. Let's yeah. go to Brian. Brian on the open line in Vancouver. Hi, Brian. Oh, sorry, Joe. Joe in Richmond. Hey, Joe. Oh, yeah. Good morning. Um, Hi. What I'd like to say, I've, I've got a, uh, a condo in a unit, I, I mean, a unit in a building in Kitts, and it's a non-smoking building. There's bylaws. It fines for non-smoking. My tenants are there, and they got smoke from the person below. It's been going on for about two years. I sent five emails to the strata, uh, and... Uh, there's been no fines to date yet levied. It's, it's a joke, and it's a non-smoking building. What happens J- Jack, there Jack, what can you do? Well, I think this is one of the things that what I would encourage you to do is contact the Condominium Homeowners Association and get some additional advice. We have some information on our website, which is smokefreehousingbc.ca, and uh, get some additional information there. But the route to go is through your strata council, and if that doesn't work, then there are other avenues that, that can be pursued. And, and I think okay. this is one of the challenges that oftentimes stratas don't want to pursue things uh, because they want to try to avoid conflict, which everyone wants to avoid conflict. But there are some additional avenues that you can pursue through there, and uh, I would um, encourage you to contact, as they say, uh, Tony Giovantu at the yeah. Condominium Homeowners Association is an awesome guy who, and their office has some more um, advice about some of those rules. I mean, we, okay. we have information on our site uh, to assist people with, with Brian, that. Brian in Vancouver, hi. Hi, yes. Uh, I'm a resident of BC Housing Building, and uh, due to a disability, I have lung fibrosis, and this has caused... Uh, some uh, environmental factors such as asbestos, uh, places I've worked in the past. Uh, I've worked in a paper mill, Scott Paper, actually. And then, and also, uh, I was a mechanic for years, so I dealt with a lot of dust from brakes, etc. And uh, I have fibrosis of the lungs. I've never smoked in my life. Um, I'm in a BC housing complex, and uh, I moved in into the suite in Vancouver, and I uh, talked to the... Um, Department manage, uh, manager of that building, uh, for, uh, e- on each and every viewing to make sure that no, uh, none of my surrounding neighbors were smokers. She assured me that of that. When I moved in, I found the next door neighbor lady was a smoker. And uh, is smoking fellow, a, is smoking allowed in the building? It's a non. Uh, it's, there's only two non-smoking designated buildings by BC Housing. And this is one of them. I was oh, in man. Okay, and there's, and, there's, and there's smoking going on. Thank you for calling in. I, I, I know, Jack, you probably have the same advice for this caller as the previous caller. Uh, let's squeeze in another caller here. we got to go quick. Peter and Surrey, you got to go quick. Yeah, this is ridiculous. If it's a non-smoking building, I get it. But if they're smoking in, these self-righteous people, they say, well, I don't smoke anymore. I don't like it, so I want to change the rules. If you don't like it, move. If it's a smoking building and people smoke, that's too bad for you. If it's a non-smoking, okay. that's fine. But quit making everybody about yourself. Okay, Peter, thank, thanks for calling in. I'm, I'm glad we got a call on the other side of it. We've got 20 seconds, Jack, if you want to respond to that. Well, I think the thing is is that it's just the same way that when we were dealing with smoke-free bars, pubs, and restaurants, is that we need to protect the workers. We, need, we know that there is harm caused from it. I just want to mention to that one caller that there is 10 a seconds. civil re- resolution tri- tribunal that they can make an application to. Okay. I just checked it out. Smokefreehousingbc.ca. 
All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Uh, let's talk about that election speculation that we were discussing earlier with Keith Baldry. Now, this has been around for a while. You take a look at some of these opinion polls uh, during this pandemic. I think people naturally putting their faith and trust in governments, and we're seeing this phenomenon across the country. Uh, governing parties tend to be doing pretty well in the polls. And uh, we wanted to uh, talk about that. And this really kicked up a notch with uh, John Horgan this week, uh, talking in, in his words about the opportunity for a possible fall election. And do we have that audio there, Tim, of that? Uh... Okay, well, I was, I was going to play some audio here, but we're just looking for it right now. Let me uh, check in right now first, though, with Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the BC Liberal Party. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, what's your concerns here? Do you, th- do you really think that Horgan and the NDP are scheming for some kind of early election call here? What's the evidence of that? Well, I think we're all disappointed to hear they're even talking about it. People are worried about their health. I mean, we've seen what happened in Kelowna. We've seen close to 200 deaths in British Columbia from a pandemic virus. And the consequences of that is we've got half a million people who were working a year ago, don't have a job now, living on CERB, worried about their future. And to hear the NDP speculating about an election, we think, is just opportunistic and totally inappropriate. Okay, this has happened a couple of times where Horgan seems to be kind of playing footsies a little bit with this idea. He used this language this week of there could be an opportunity, as he put it, for a fall election. Now, of course, we're in a minority parliament. So is is he not simply stating the facts that when you have such a narrow working majority here in, in partnership with the Green Party that... It could unravel at any point, right? Isn't that just simple stating of facts? Well, I think you and I and your listeners are thinking opportunity for whom? You know, name somebody who wants an election right now in the middle of a pandemic. Plus, they have their written agreement with the Greens saying that they'll vote on matters of confidence. There's a confidence vote on August 14th, and they've certainly got the votes to win that. So what would trigger an election when the Greens are saying it would be outrageous to have an election now? It's not going to be the Greens. It's purely John Horgan who'd be doing this. Well, so, how would he do it? Like, let's let's well, say that let's say that Horgan secretly did want to have an election, and his, and his the string pullers in the NDP war room are looking at the polls and thinking, "Man, we could win a majority here if we go to the polls right now." How could they possibly engineer an election call? And I think that's the disappointing thing because you and I say on the the fact of the matter, it's unnecessary, inappropriate. We've got much higher priorities now with half a million people out of work and a disease that's making its way through our whole society. So in the NDP scheming room, what on earth are you thinking and how would you go about it? So let's focus on getting people back to work and keeping them healthy and get the legislature functioning rather than have this idle chatter about something that might help out the NDP. Yeah, but I guess I guess that's my point, though, is that you know, is it anything other than idle chatter? I mean, is there is there any realistic way of, of triggering an election call? I mean, there's no confidence vote scheduled before the legislature, right? The budget's been passed. The throne speech has been passed. Uh, I there's suppo- another I suppose vote on op- August 14th, which will be about passing the budget. So, you know, if they wanted to engineer some kind of loss there, that would be just totally irresponsible of them. Oh, okay. So, so there's a budget. We'll there's another budget. There's another budget vote coming up. Yes. What's happening right now this summer is that the uh, what's called the estimates, which is the budget from February, is being reviewed to see if they've got it quite right. 
and the government has enough votes to pass it because they have the Greens uh, tied up with their conference and supply agreement. So it's not a matter of the NDP not having enough votes. It would be a matter of the NDP doing something really slippery to try and engineer an election. Like like maybe, what, a few NDP MLAs could get sick or get the sniffles and not show up to work, and then they deliberately lose a vote? Oh, you know, you can speculate, Mike, about how they might arrange for the Internet to go down in 10 places in B.C. on the particular moment of the vote. But I think that would be so transparently silly that they'd bear the carry the cost of that. Okay, there's no way that you guys are interested in an election, right? The priority, Mike, is to get people back to work and keep people healthy. That's why we're over the legislature asking them what the plan is. And it's abundantly clear now there is no plan for tourism. 130,000 people work in tourism in B.C. I think back to that call we had a month ago with the Bear Viewing Association of B.C. They've been wiped out this year. There is no business. They've had to return all the deposits. That's what we've got to be worried about not about the political fortunes of the NDP. Right, so there's no way that the Liberal opposition, you guys would never try to move a non-confidence motion against the government here to try and bring the government down then? in any, t- in any Oh, short I think time we window. would bear the wrath of the people of British Columbia if we right. did. Right. Now, you, you tell me, anybody you've met on the street who's saying, gee whiz, wouldn't it be great to have an election right now? Right, so you guys don't want an election. The Green Party this week is on the record saying they were disturbed by Horgan's comment about an election opportunity they don't want an election either uh horgan now if you listen closely to what horgan is saying he's saying he doesn't want an election too right like he's saying that i don't want an election i'm just saying that the the the, the, uh the standings in the house are very tight uh yeah but i think the tone of it was gee there's an opportunity this fall and if you think about as you said earlier uh government parties all over the world are doing pretty well in the polls because of the response to covid so if John Horgan thinks he can capitalize on that, he should come out right now and say categorically, there is no need for an election this fall, and let's focus on getting British Columbians back to work and, above all, keeping people healthy. Okay, do you think, in a, speaking to Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, do you think a snap election call would also be irresponsible from a public health point of view? Like, I believe Dr. Bonnie Henry is already on the record as saying that an, elec- an early election call would be uh, be unwarranted during a pandemic. She doesn't want one. Well, if you think about putting two or three million voters lining up in uh, voting facilities and people maybe going to events that are put on to prepare for an election, it's a formula for trouble. So why on earth would somebody be keen to trigger that? You know, we're we're coming back to where we work in March and April. Our job is to defeat the virus, not to fight an election. Okay, you mentioned some of the other things that you should be, you think should be priorities for the government right now, and you mentioned specifically tourism. I spoke to the chair of the Tourism Association on the show yesterday, how they're looking for a big bailout from government to the tune of $680 million. Where do you stand on that? Do you think the government should be putting that kind of money on the table to help the tourism sector right now? We're going to have to start to think of the tourism sector in terms of the summer operators and whether they're going to survive till next spring. And let's just put the cards on the table. There are thousands of operators who have had either no revenue or money-losing revenue this summer. I just think of all the fishing lodges, the people who do bear viewing, the wilderness lodges that didn't even open. Uh, There are lots of them around, and they're going to have to talk to their um, lenders in the fall and say, I got no money. And those folks are also going to look at each other at home and say, Honey, I don't know if we can plow our savings into this anymore. Maybe we should just walk away. And then there are lots of those people whose 
uh, spouse or partner will look back at them and say, wait a second, honey, we signed personal guarantees. Our house and our car and everything else depend on keeping the business going. Let's have that conversation and figure out, first of all, what we can do to salvage the season this fall. And secondly, what's going to happen with the winter season? Are these ski resorts going to open at all? And that comes around to a survival conversation. And it's got to start happening right now because, unfortunately, John Horgan and the NDP didn't even include the tourism industry in their economic uh, recovery task force. We were just blown away by that because it's the most vulnerable sector in our society. And they had no place at the table. So the, what, the government should bail the, bail, the, bail the industry out then? Well, yes. there needs to be a very clear conversation, probably in public, about what the needs are to make sure that 130,000 people have a job next summer. Well, there's, there's a, an a conversation on right now. The conversation's going on right now. I mean, you got the BC Tourism Association this week asked the BC government for $680 million. Are you saying the government should give them the $680 million? I'm saying it's a very good thing the Tourism Association crystallized this and put the cards on the table because we've been in the legislature asking the tourism minister dozens and dozens of questions which she has evaded and has said oh yes yes we'll figure it out someday well we better figure it out right now before all these uh, companies come forward and say on september 30th they're supposed to pay all their back taxes to the government of british columbia and an awful lot of them are going to say on september 28th we're packing it in declare bankruptcy I'm I'm, i'm trying to get you to put your cards on the table would you give them the 680 million or not there's the prospect of serious support for the tourism industry in the federal and provincial funding plans, and we think that's entirely appropriate. The exact amount is going to have to be sorted out, but this is an industry that needs help to survive the winter, period. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for your time, Mike. All the very okay. best. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the surge in COVID-19 cases in British Columbia now. It appears to be driven to a large extent by young people not observing the social distancing rules, getting together for parties and drum circles and potentially spreading the virus. Why are people breaking the rules? Why are we letting down our guard here? Well, a lot of this potentially gets down to the psychology of COVID, how people think and feel about this pandemic. So let's talk to an expert about that now. My guest is Professor Stephen Taylor. He's in the psychology department at UBC, and he's a member of the Government of Canada's National Expert Panel on COVID-19. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks very much, Mike. Hey, you know, we take a look at um, the outbreaks that we've seen in places like Kelowna, where we've heard reports about young people getting together in parties. We saw that big drum circle the other night at Stanley Park, and a lot of the concerns registered about that. Why do you think that's happening? It appears to be maybe some young people willing to bend the rules. What, what do you think that gets down to the sort of their thinking and feelings about this pandemic? Why is that going on in your mind? I think there are a couple of things going on. One is wishful thinking of being desperately sick of social distancing and wanting to get back to life as they knew it. And um, and with things opening up, people are, are hoping that they can just bend the rules just a little bit. The other thing I think is going on is the hidden nature of this pandemic. We're not seeing bodies in the street. We're not seeing corpses lined up in day rooms or hearses. This is very different from the Spanish flu, which the site of coffins is a daily event. So, and hardly anyone knows anyone who's died from COVID-19 or got sick from it. So it gives this whole pandemic an unreal feel to it, where most people's exposure to um, the deaths and hardships from COVID-19 has come over the, over the internet or over TV. So it gives it a, an unreal abstract feel, which can lead some people 
um, to, to discount the seriousness. And you can't combine that with wishful thinking. You get drum circles, you get people partying, you get people pushing the limits of, uh, of, of, of social gatherings. Yeah, and do you think it's, it, it appears to be, to a degree, younger people that seem to be more likely to let their guard down? Do you think that maybe is a factor that young people are maybe less vulnerable to the virus and they're more, they're more potentially likely to recover, maybe get sick and recover and not certainly not die from it, typically, if a young person gets it? Do you think that makes it easier for them to let their guard down? It can do. I mean, I don't want to stereotype people based on age, yeah. but... There is a little more in the way of young people doing it, but it's not exclusively young people. We've got some uh, older people who are more vulnerable out there partying as well. So it's not just the young ones, but it, it is a lot of the young ones who see themselves as, uh, you know, functionally the younger mortals of being impervious to infection or believing that if they got sick, that it wouldn't be very serious for them. Yeah, and younger people, too, I think, have been disproportionately hurt economically. We see a lot of young people out of work. A lot of the industries where young people uh, have got jobs have been hurt really badly in this pandemic. Do you think that that's also a factor, that you might have young people, in addition to feeling maybe a little bit bulletproof from the virus, or in some cases also out of work? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. It's yeah. This pandemic is affecting young people in many ways differently from older people. They're economically stressed, and so you can see that as another reason for wanting to get out and blow off steam, to get out and have a good time because you're, you're already under stress and you're wanting to find some way of relaxing. Speaking to Professor Stephen Taylor from the psychology department at, at UBC, is there COVID fatigue out there? Like, are people just getting to the point where they just get sort of sick and tired of this whole thing, dragging on month after month after month, and they get fatigue? Yeah, that's happened in past outbreaks. The longer this lasts, the, uh, the more people will get sick of it, and if there are increased government mandates or lockdowns, sometimes the partying goes underground. Um, but most people in past outbreaks have you know, had a, a grumbling kind of acceptance to it. Okay, if we have to go into another lockdown, then they'll, they'll do it. But you know, in general, the longer this lasts, the more difficult it is going to be for people to adhere to social distancing. Yeah, we see public health officials trying to get the message through to to people, and we've got a, a public health officer here in Dr. Bonnie Henry who who said again yesterday, it, it's not her style to try and force people to wear a mask or bring in some uh, heavy-handed uh, enforcement of physical distancing regulations. She wants people to buy in voluntarily. And she's trying to make that point on a daily basis, encouraging people to stick with the program and not let their guard down. We heard a similar message from Premier John Horgan yesterday after this uh, drum circle that everyone saw in Stanley Park saying, like, come on, people, we're better than this. So they're trying to get the message out. Do you think that's going to work? Like, if, if you were to advise the government on, on how we can get people to do a better job of following these, these regulations, what would you suggest? I like that approach. We can try it and see, try and appeal to people's sense of community. Um, you're not, doing, not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for your grandmother, for example. You're doing it for the, the elderly neighbour down the street. And we can do better than this. We've come this far. It would be a, a pity to get together and precipitate a second wave. So I, I like that approach they're taking. But if it doesn't work, then uh, two things will we'll get people in line if there's a, a mandated shutdown. And unfortunately, what does get people in line is if they get sick themselves or have a loved one who gets sick and dies. Uh, that 
very rapidly makes people take this whole thing seriously and gets them to start socially distancing and wearing masks and so forth. So let's hope we don't get that far. Let's hope people are able to realise, okay, you know, the more I party, the worse this is going to get. So we just need to tough it out for, I don't know, it'd be great if the government could give us some statistics and uh, data modelling as to how much longer we would have to have a kind of lockdown. But other than that, you know, we just need to tough it out for the next perhaps several weeks, if not maybe a bit longer. Yeah, you wrote a book that came out last year very in very timely fashion, The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. That just came out uh, just before this pandemic hit, which is amazing <laughs> to think oh. that we're, we're in the middle of this thing now. I mean, you kind of saw it coming here. When, when this pandemic hit, um, what went through your mind having just read, having just written that book? Well, it was interesting. I started working on that book in 2018. I got interested in it because that was the centenary of the Spanish flu. And there were all these media interviews with virologists talking about the next pandemic. And I started reading that. My background's in anxiety disorders and health anxiety and so forth. And the more I read about this, the more I realized that pandemics are fundamentally uh, psychological phenomena where what we do or choose to do or choose not to do influences and spread uh, containment of infection. So, it, but it was one thing to spend two years writing about it. It was a surreal experience, I've got to tell you. It was when this pandemic unfolded. I got to see all the things I'd been writing about unfold before my very eyes. The, the rise of racism, the panic buying, the, um, the, uh, the anticipatory anxiety. But yeah, it, it was a surreal experience. But I, I knew a pandemic was coming. I just didn't think it was becoming so soon. Right. And as we've watched this thing all unfold uh, together here, has it pretty much unfolded as you anticipated in your book? Uh, yes and no. It, all the, 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 the fundamental things have happened. Panic buying, racism, uh, people becoming highly avoidant, um, people clapping and cheering healthcare workers and yet being frightened about being around healthcare workers. That's all happened. Uh, what was a little different is I thought it would be an influenza virus, not a coronavirus. Uh, so that was a little different. Um, and what's different from previous pandemics, this is the first pandemic in the era of social media and global internet connectivity. So everything is happening as it did in previous pandemics, like panic buying, but it's happening a lot faster and more dramatically because news goes viral so quickly. Speaking of Professor Stephen Taylor at the uh, psychology department at UBC, you mentioned that um, your area of specialty is uh, anxiety and stress and, and mental disorders. Uh, are, are we suffer? Are people suffering? Is their mental health suffering because of this pandemic? And do you think we need more mental health services as a result? Um, people's mental health is suffering. People are more anxious and, and depressed than they were before the pandemic. Some people have what we're calling a COVID stress syndrome. They're very frightened about getting infected. They're, they're xenophobic. They're frightened about the socioeconomic fallout. They're having nightmares and intrusive thoughts about COVID nineteen. They're compulsively checking. They're a minority, but the big question is, will these mental health problems persist or will they just abate uh, once the pandemic has passed? I would expect that for many people, and perhaps most of their distress will subside once the pandemic has passed, but I think we do, however, need more mental health resources, um, particularly online resources to help people get through these difficult times. Yeah. What are, what are the uh, symptoms of COVID's, uh, COVID stress well, these people are very frightened about getting infected, frightened, and they worry about the socioeconomic fallout. They're frightened of being around other people. They're frightened of, of strangers. 
They check compulsively, check the internet for news stories. They check their own pulses. Uh, they uh, uh, repeatedly seek reassurance about their health. They have nightmares about COVID-19, in part perhaps because of all the uh, media that they consume. So they're anxious, they're depressed and irritable, and they, uh, they're very frightened. And they're also uh, likely to wear uh, face masks and gloves and uh, visors and so forth, too. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts today. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, Mike.